Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Matthew Ernst, Regional Manager and Speech Pathologist from Better Rehab in Queensland. Today, I'm pleased to be chatting with Dr. Catherine Gregory from the University of Technology, Sydney, about functional neurological disorders. Kath is a speech pathologist, lecturer and clinical educator at UTS and has a PhD in neuroscience, which led to a particular interest in working with and researching FNDs. Kath has recently worked with Jan Baker and Laura McWhirter and others to formulate and publish the consensus recommendations for speech pathology assessment and management of FNDs. Thanks so much for joining me, Kath. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, Kath, I guess today we really want to talk about, I guess, a bit of a topic that can be a little scary for speech pathologists. Mm -hmm. I think when we see that diagnosis of FND on our referral form, uh, it, it sends a little bit of fear through some of us as to how we approach all of that. But I guess to get us started, what is FND? Yeah, so it's really interesting. So historically, there has been this fear around FND. But, you know, luckily now, since about the 2000s, more and more research is coming out. And it's really becoming apparent that uh, FND is a problem with the functioning of the nervous system. So how the brain and the body sends and receives signals rather than it being a structural or anatomically based um, disease such a stroke. So as you can imagine, the appropriate functioning of our nervous system is required for quite a lot of our bodily functions. So the symptoms of FND can be very varied, um, such as severe fatigue, cognitive issues, paralysis, limb weakness, tremors, seizures, blindness. Um, and of course, what we deal with is those speech and swallowing difficulties. So uh, to put it in a little bit of an easier terms for people, I love the analogies that are often used for FND. Um, that with them being the opposite, FND being the opposite of phantom limb um, or phantom limb syndrome or phantom leg syndrome. So we've all heard of those amputees who've had limbs removed, um, but still feel that pain and sensation in the missing limb. So the missing limb is very real and that pain that they feel is still very real for that amputee. So FND is can be compared to the opposite of that, where the limbs are all still there, but the brain actually senses that they're not. So there's an issue with the feedback loop or the feed-forward loop with muscles and areas of the brain, um, which lead to a lack of automaticity of, of movements. Um, so then they lead to symptoms such as muscle weakness, tremors and seizures. So another analogy that's often used uh, recently is that FND is a software issue rather than a hardware issue. So we can all imagine our computer is not working very well, but there's nothing wrong with the hardware. The computer itself is fine, but it's the program, the software that we have on the computer that has a problem. So 
what I like about that analogy is that, you know, we often as clinicians have looked to being able to see um, diseases with MRIs and things in hospitals where we want to see the the damage that, you know, is happening in, in terms of structures, but you can't with FND. Um, and so it, historically that's led to people thinking that it's not real because we can't see it. Um, but, you know, it's really important that it is that uh, sense of the the body functioning, how the body's sending and receiving signals that in, that is impaired rather than the anatomy itself. Fantastic. I love that analogy about the, the software glitch um, yes. rather than the hardware. I think that really sums it up quite nicely and, and puts it in such a mainstream light for us to be able to perceive, I guess, what an FND is. Yeah, definitely. So I, I guess based on that, how is an FND diagnosed? So... Um, Historically, you know, FND was a disease of exclusion or diagnosis of exclusion, I should say. So people would have numerous MRIs and you know, EEGs and be sent from specialist to specialist for second opinions before being diagnosed with a medically unexplained or you know, a conversion disorder, as the, as the disorder used to be called. But recently, there's been a much needed shift uh, towards FND requiring positive diagnosis. So patients being told what they do have rather than what they don't have, which is really important for patients accepting their diagnosis, I think. Um, so that positive diagnosis that happens now is really focuses on aspects such as the symptoms being inconsistent. So one day will be worse than others, for example. Um, you can w- wake up and have you know, relatively few symptoms one day, but the next day you, know, you, you can't move your leg at all. Uh, we often see uh, improved improvement in the symptoms when someone's distracted. So because they because it's a lack of auto, more autonomic function, when we distract the, the patient with FND, their symptoms actually improve. And and likewise, when we fo- when we focus on it, so in assessments, which it makes assessment difficult, um, when we focus on the symptoms, they often become worse. So a perfect example of this is you know, someone with a functional aphonia, so lack of voice. They'll be able to whisper to you a conversation when you're talking to them and when they walk in through the door and giving you some history. But as soon as you ask them to do a prolonged R, so that MPT um, test that we do, they won't be able to get any voice out at all. So focusing on that task really makes the, the symptoms worse. So we often see struggling behaviours that they're commonly seen. So things like over mouthing or eye blinking or facial contortions, really, you know, signs of excess effort and, and trying really hard to, to get the movement that they want. Um, you know, but of course, not all patients will demonstrate these signs. I guess that makes some nice, interesting challenges for us that we see the, the symptoms get worse when we focus on it. Which Definitely some of those challenges of therapy that I'm sure we all have. Yes, for sure. I guess you talked about the fact that I guess historically uh, people have been told what they don't have more so than what they what they do have. Do you know of any helpful client resources that are out there that, that clinicians can help, I guess, uh, explain to their clients what it is that they're experiencing? Yeah, so sure, there's a, I mean, the most common one is neurosymptoms.org. It's a wonderful website that was um, set up by the team in Edinburgh that are kind of leading the research and, and treatment in this area. 
So that's a fantastic place for clients to start to read about the condition themselves. Um, so yeah, that's by Professor John Stone and, and colleagues. So they've got some wonderful handouts and some really clear explanations and some lovely little videos, actually really short little videos that explain what FND is, why someone might have FND, you know, what's caused it. Um, and there's, there's also a really nice hand, um, handout for functional cognitive changes on that website. But uh, they're a bit short on the speech and swallowing um, aspects at the moment. I think they predominantly focus on more of the physical um, symptoms that people with more severe FND tend to have. So um, fndaustralia.org.au is, is a must site for anyone that's uh, must site to uh, visit, sorry, for anyone that's in Australia. So they've got a they again have videos. They link to professionals that are that are, uh, work in this area, and also have support groups for provide support for clients. But I, I think what I need to stress really is that no one should just be given a website uh, to go and read up about their symptoms. I think uh, as clinicians historically, again, we've been quite frightened to talk about functional disorders with with patients, and we shouldn't be. It comes from the history of the disorder being thought of purely as a psycho psychological or psychogenic disorder and, you know, being thought of as being all in someone's head or they're putting it on. Historically, there's been, you know, a lot of that happening. So, um, yeah, it's really important that we take the time to, to educate the clients ourselves. And, yeah, just plugging that wonderful paper by Jan, Jan Baker again, that consensus uh, report on management of speech pathology management of FND has some really nice examples in a table of how you can talk to your client about FND and how you can educate them as to what's happening and why, you know, why this has happened to them. It's fantastic to hear that there's, I guess, more resources that's, that are generally published out there that people can find now to help us sort of turn around that stigma that's been associated with FND in the past. So that's really good to hear. Oh, definitely. And there are more and more podcasts and you know, people on Twitter and you know, the, the people with FND themselves are really having a voice out there in, in social media, which are just wonder, wonderful to follow as well. Here's hoping we can all play our part in turning that around as well. Yeah. I guess when we get to the speech pathology component from an FND side of things, um, what sort of assessment considerations should we be thinking of in FND? And can we use standardised assessments that we already have? Hmm. So in assessment, we're really looking for those positive signs I talked about uh, earlier. So we're looking for that inconsistency of symptoms, uh, the incongruence. So, you know, how what we're seeing, the, the symptoms we're seeing don't really fit with um, something like a stroke uh, or something else that could have happened to these to these people. Um, and the suggestibility. So suggestibility meaning that, you know, that the symptoms get worse when we focus on them. So that suggestibility means that those standardised assessments are often not really the best option. So if a client worsens when they know I'm assessing them, I'm not going to make them sit down for an hour and do a formalised standard assessment. Um, so often I'll start the assessment with someone, you know, exactly the same way I would for someone with a structural uh, di disorder. Um, because, you know, at that point I'm, I'm not sure. Often when they, turn, when they come to me, especially if they've just got, say, stuttering that's suddenly appeared or, um, you know, loss of voice, I'm going to start assessing them the same way I would anybody with stuttering or voice problems or swallowing problems. 
Um, but I really want to, you know, in, in the background history um, gathering of information, I'll really start to get information about the onset of their difficulties, whether the symptoms vary at times or are consistent, the client's background history, and, you know, I'll often start to see some of the signs that make me hypothesize that maybe this could be a functional neurological sim uh, symptoms what are being reported. So just little, little giveaways are often things like it started after an injury or the symptoms came on, then went away again, and then came on again later and you know, stayed a bit longer this time, and then they went away again, and now they're here and they haven't gone away after you know, a couple of months or something. So then when I hear sort of those those little, I guess, red flags or you know, little hints that this could be functional neurological disorder, I'll immediately trial some distraction techniques. So I'll want to see if the symptoms improve when we're not focusing on um, performing the activity itself. So the, the measurable, measurable way I do this depends on the symptoms the client uh, presents with. So often I'll be recording my clients uh, anyway, and we can play back you know, their voices or their speech. So hear that how many disfluencies they had when they were focusing on the task compared to how many disfluencies they had when we were distracted with, with something else. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks. I, I think, again, we, we tend to sort of, I guess, look at FNDs and, and fear that we've got the, the resources, I guess, to assess them in a way that will do justice and, and adequately guide the therapy that we want to provide to these mm -hmm. people. So, Kath, is there a minimum specialist diagnosis required before treatment can commence? Well, a neurologist is responsible for officially diagnosing a patient with FND. And if we suspect someone of having an FND, a referral to a neurologist is certainly recommended if they've not already been diagnosed when we see them. Um, however, we can often be the first port of call for someone who, say, loses their voice or starts stuttering um, after you know injury or through, due to stress. So... If I see those symptoms of or those positive signs of inconsistency, you know, incongruence and distractibility, um, you know, if I see those early in my initial assessment that make me make me suspect FND, I'll start treatment immediately. So early speech pathology intervention in functional communication and swallowing disorders can have you know incredibly positive and often curative results. So in my own experience, for example, I've had quite a few clients that have been suffering with a stutter for say three months but they leave the clinic um, after just one session with fluent speech so I'm not going to send someone like that away waiting for a diagnosis of FND from their um, neurologist before I see them so you know especially because the longer someone has had symptoms prior to accessing treatment the poorer the prognosis is in general so early intervention is really the key so I guess it, it shouldn't stop us providing that early intervention, but we should be keeping in mind that we should be referring on to that neurologist as, as part of that process as well. Definitely. It's always one of those uh, funny areas where we're not allowed to diagnose, but we kind of have to, in our heads, have a hypothesis of a diagnosis to begin to work on what we're working on. But what I really want to see, you know, when we get positive um, reaction to treatment and so distraction techniques you know, that's that's another argument for, please see this client, I suspect, they pre present with symptoms which are consistent with a functional uh, neurological symptoms. 
I think with uh, lots of clients now having NDIS plans and that sort of thing, I, I think one of the questions that we often wonder is, you know, is there much success with FND being approved as an NDIS diagnosis? Yeah, so I mean, the it's important to remember that the requirements for NDIS are that, you know, a person with, uh, the person has to have a, a disorder or permanent or uh, significant disability. So what we know is that 50 to 90% of people with FND will experience ongoing symptoms. And despite FND not being a progressive disorder as such, uh, they may become worse, especially, you know, even after treatment begins. So especially if they are, um, if treatment is delayed and, and there's longer, and it's longer than six to 12 months before they get treated after symptom onset. So I think it's really important to remember that there are, uh, Kind of two main areas of FND that we would see clients with those that I've just described that would be that more permanent disability where they've had these symptoms for a very long time before they've had treatment there's often you know paralysis paresis involved with limbs they're often in wheelchairs with just a lot of symptoms and speech and swallowing is just part of that so those are the clients that I think we really should be pushing for NDIS, um, you know, an NDIS diagnosis and getting the funding for those people. But there's also those that we see um, with just, you know, they just come to us with just speech or just stuttering, just voice problems. Those are the clients that, you know, we can see huge improvement in or even, you know, complete recovery in one session, quite incredibly. So I'm not going to be applying for NDIS funding for those kind of people, Absolutely. Um, even though you know they may they may um, have issues in the, in the in the future as well. But you know it'll be those more severe FND clients that NDIS will will be important for. Fantastic, and I, I guess that leads us into the the big question: How do we treat an FND? Yeah, so like I said, you know, the, the diversity of symptoms uh, that can be present with FND and the varied potential causes or triggers that, you know, they really differ from person to person. So treatment plans really need to be tailored to suit that individual. Um, there's not really a one fix, will fix all option for FND. Uh, and it you know, may take some time to develop the correct treatment plan. For those clients that are um, have multiple or severe symptoms, um, you know they they really need multidisciplinary uh, intervention. So they're usually having physio as well as neuro as well as psych um, involvement in their treatment. So for those, you know, when they, when it's long-standing and we're not expecting them to recover, it's really really important that we treat them as having a significant disability. So. You know, we, we should be providing AAC or feeding tubes for those of people who can't, you know, those people who have significant swallowing difficulties um, that are continuing. We really should not just be withholding treatment because we think they're going to get better if we force them to get better. That's not the way FND works. So it's really, into, really important to remember that, you know, we do need to provide compensatory treatment where it's needed. On the other hand, with those clients that come to see me just with functional speech or communication and swallowing symptoms, um, you know, there's very limited published evidence out there. So no gold standard as yet in terms of treatment. But, you know, again, the consensus document that you know, I, I was part of you know, got everybody together and, and we all kind of agree that it's, it's just those use of di- distraction techniques 
So really important that, you know, we, we get clients to be distracted while really getting hold of their more um, autonomic functions, functions again. And this is a lot easier to demonstrate over video than it would be over a podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> but, you know, just some examples for listeners to what I would do for distraction. The things like um, tapping their thumb across each finger of the hand and back again sequentially across both hands. So I'd get them to do that and really focus on that's the task that they're doing while they're talking to me. So often someone, you know, if I'm getting someone to do that and really focusing on tapping each of those fingers of their hands back and forth, um, their fluency, for example, would improve. Uh, or they'll be able to swallow. They'll be able to swallow again suddenly. They, you know, the gag reflex that they have been suffering with will just disappear because they, they're using that more um, autonomic rather than kind of voluntary trying to make this swallow work kind of function. So with people with voice problems, you know, I might use a laugh or a, a cough into voicing. So, <clears throat> so something that's more involuntary into into yeah. then voluntary speech. So it's anything that gets them distracted uh, from the task and gets them into that more. Basically, the other way I like to think about it is that the trains come off the track, how they're producing speech or voice or whatever it is. And they're trying to drag the train along rather than it running smoothly on the tracks. So yeah. we want to distract them to get that train back on those right tracks again and, and get that autonomic um, function moving again. So anything that distracts, I've used playing music to them in headphones. You'll see physios often get people walking backwards or dancing when they can't walk. They can't walk, but they're able to dance. They're able to walk backwards. Um, you know, I've used sorting coloured beads. Uh, I've used bouncing books on top of heads and moving while you're trying to talk. Anything. You've, got, you've really got to try everything out of your, your bag of tricks um, to get them really distracted from the motor plan that they're trying to um, access. You talk about physios using dancing. Is speeches using singing anything that, that sort of is, is useful in there? Oh, potentially, yeah. I've not actually thought about that. I've not actually thought about singing into into um, you know in terms of things with speech and, and stuttering. I would imagine it might might work if their singing's not affected and their speech is. But no, I usually just distract it with at another task, another function, okay. another like a another task that yeah that really has yeah. to make them think. But it's it's interesting. You what you'll often see is them flickering that like their eyes will flick upwards and away from you because they're really trying to think about what they have to do. Mm -hmm. um, so often they'll also get right in someone's face and say, look at me and stare at me right, right into my eyes. Don't you drop eye contact with me and carry on trying to do, you know, carry on talking. And they find that really, really hard. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of, you know, when we've got access back to that, just that, proper train tracks you know the, the things are working again more autonomically we really have to think then about what triggered what triggered this to happen what were the precipitating factors so um you know if it is stress and trauma which historically everybody's thought has to be the the trigger of fnd uh, we now know that 30 percent of people with fnd don't have any past trauma or stress or you know, mental health issues at all um, and it can often come on with uh, injury, like I said, or you know, 
overworking, over physical exertion with sports, for example. So we really need to work out what it is that triggered it, um, what the precipitating factors are, and really work through those, trying to get someone to problem solve. Okay, I get worse when I'm chatting to my boss in work or when I'm at a meeting, my symptoms flare up. So, uh, you know, a lot of the time that will require things like CBT and I'll refer to a, a psychologist to help out in that respect. Is the psychology input something that needs to happen for all FND clients? Is it something that as clinicians we should be encouraging people to always engage with psychology or is it on a case-by-case basis? Yeah, not at all. So it's definitely a case-by-case basis and I think that's where we've gone wrong in the past is we hear the diagnosis of, you know, functional or what you know, it used to be called psychogenic or conversion disorder and you'll still quite a few times get you know, FND referred to as by those outdated names um we used to think that we can't see them until they've got a psychologist involved or you know they have to go see a psychologist but like i said for you know 20 to 30 percent of people have absolutely no stress or trauma or anything psychological involved in onset it was literally you know they fell over hit their head um the pain in the head just makes the body suddenly want to disassociate with that pain so you know all of a sudden brain's not working well anymore so for people like that psych yeah that psych help really isn't needed i mean they might they might need some just because of the likelihood of you know getting some depression or something because you've got a disability um but it's certainly case by case if the client wants to go down that path then i'll recommend it but i'm not going to make people go down that path before i see them yeah absolutely and i think that can have a bit of a damage to our clinical rapport with with clients if if we're making that recommendation where it's potentially not needed, then we're, we're sort of damaging that relationship with our clients yeah, before we've sh- even started. For sure. And, you know, when, when I've in the past and I used to call it psychogenic, this is a psychogenic disorder. You know, the first things clients would say to me, you're calling me crazy. Um, no, I'm not calling you crazy. <laughs> Your brain's actually very clever and it's trying to protect you. It's yeah. shutting down to protect you from the perceived attack it's just that you know that perceived attack is not real um but clients tend to really you know be more accepting of this functional neurological um, diagnosis which is great fantastic and in those sorts of therapy approaches should we be leaning more towards an impairment based or a functional based kind of approach to those therapies is there one that's better than the other or is it client specific Again, you know, it's because it's because it's distraction. I don't think it's either one of those things necessarily. Mm. It's literally, you know, the way we're gonna we're gonna distract you to try to get you back into your more autonomic way of doing things. So you're not overthinking. What what has been what has been found through brain studies looking at the brain function rather than structure is that there's you know increased connectivity between emotional processing areas of the brain and the motor control, uh, decreased area of the um, activity of the thalamus and reduced activity in the right temporoparietal cortex. So that that area of the brain is really important for self-agency. And so that knowledge of control of your own actions. So basically, someone with FND has a reduced knowledge of control of their own actions. So they're overthinking everything. They're really trying to think, how do I walk for every time they go to walk, which, you know, we just walk (laughs) or we just talk. Uh, It just comes very kind of automatically. Uh, but they're overthinking that process. So really the key to 
to uh, treatment is to distract, get them to stop overthinking things, get them back into that really more autonomic way of doing things, you know, not thinking about it. So it's hard, you know, we've got to treat, but try not to focus on what we're treating. It's really Absolutely. It's interesting. A, it's a different approach to what I guess we're, we're used to in, for in sure. some of those other conditions that we're managing as speech pathologists. Yeah, so, for sure. But, yeah. you know, that, like I said, then, you know, past a certain point when it's when it's clear that this person is now have has a lifelong disability uh you know it's severe it's long long standing it's worsening despite treatment that's when we really need to be you know compensating for those disorders so getting someone AAC if they they have speech difficulties um you know getting them tube fed if they can't swallow it's so yeah it really depends on the presentation of the the client at the time and so it kind of sounds from what you've been saying today that we don't need to have that fear that by focusing on on the difficulty that we're going to make it worse per se Uh, I guess it's a bit of a perception that because of I guess the the nature of the condition that sometimes drawing people's attention to the impairment might have made it worse but it certainly sounds like that's not the case yeah I mean the thought of it um FND and the way it continues is people get do get over focused on their symptoms, so we want to avoid that total over focus on something, but focus on it enough and you know get people to understand why they might be over focusing and that it's all part of this bigger picture and you know that's really how we how we treat. So, Kath, you've mentioned earlier on about the neurosymptoms.org website. Are there any other societies or organisations that uh, clinicians could be directed towards to find out more information or any professional development that they can access? Oh, definitely. So um, I'd really recommend if uh, clinicians are interested in this area to you know, consider joining the FNDS or the FND Society. They have... You know, it's relatively cheap membership and they have regular webinars and um, podcasts like this, links to all of the newest uh, research. It's a really great society society to be part of, actually. Um, and they've got a conference coming up in June sometime, which I should know the date of, but I don't. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it sounds <laughs> like there's some, some great directions there for people who are looking to find out a little bit more. Kath, thanks for chatting to us today. I certainly, I can certainly say that I've learned quite a bit about FNDs today from from chatting through with you, and certainly hope that everybody else has. Um, for everybody listening today, thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back with another Speak Up conversation next Wednesday. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found, and make sure. share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.